This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. I'm the managing editor here at EdSurge, an award-winning nonprofit newsroom covering education. This week's episode is a little different as far as the format. Today we are bringing you highlights of a recent panel discussion that we led. It's about a core question about the future of teaching. That question, how can teachers improve their classroom practices using findings from learning science? And in this session, we also looked at what educators learn from an approach known as learning engineering, which kind of proposes to treat the classroom as a place of continuous improvement through kind of experimenting on your own classroom to make it better. The discussion took place as a panel at the ISTE Live 21 conference, and it was moderated by my colleague, Rebecca Koenig. Regular listeners will recognize her as an occasional host of this podcast. She's a reporter here. She did a great episode just last week, in fact. I should note that ISTE is the parent company of EdSurge. Okay, that's probably all the setup we need. Let me hand this over to my colleague, Rebecca, and this session that we recorded just a couple weeks ago. Thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us for this session, which is about how to continuously improve your teaching, tips from the learning engineering, and I should add learning science uh, movements and research. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter and editor for EdSurge, uh, which is a nonprofit news publication covering education from really from birth until uh, and through adulthood. We're, we're thrilled to be here with some experts um, in learning science and learning engineering. Um, it's a topic that we've been covering at EdSurge for about a year now. We have a whole collection of stories on it, um, which you can find, I believe, linked in, in the session tote here, but also on our website, edsurge.com. Quick plug, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletters uh, and get more great coverage like what we're going to bring to you today. Um, but I am going to briefly introduce my guests, and then we were going to have an interesting conversation. Um, I have learned so much about this research, just reporting on it recently, and so I'm, I'm happy to bring these folks to you directly. Um, we are joined by Callie Lowenstein, who is a program manager for Deans for Impact. Um, also, we are joined by Professor Neil Heffernan, who uh, teaches at Worcester Polytech Institute and Anya Piku, a program director for the Learning Agency Lab. And their work is much more interesting and exciting than just their titles tell you, but I always think the conversation is the best, best part of these panels. So I'm gonna keep the intros really brief. Um, and I think you will learn more about them and their work as we go. So um, maybe I'll just start with you, Callie. How does your work involve learning science or learning engineering? And what do those concepts mean to you? Sure. So uh, currently, I'm, I'm working at Deans for Impact, which is a nonprofit that works with teacher preparation programs across the country, trying to help them think about, well, how do we bring learning science into uh, into our programs and in the way that we train and prepare new teachers? And um, 
for me, the, the way that I think about and kind of the connection between learning science and learning engineering is the idea of modeling and having a model. And I think a lot of the time in education, we throw so many different new initiatives, new programs, new curricula and PD at teachers. And so having a more simple way of understanding uh anything really, and in science we use models a lot, um, can help us think about filtering all of those different things and how they relate to each other. And so uh, I'm thinking a lot about now, how do we help new novice teachers who are inundated with lots of information about what teaching is or should be? Um, how do we help them have a simpler model based on our understanding of the mind? So that's that's kind of how I think about it. Great. And Anya, how about for you? What does learning science or learning engineering mean to you? And how does it uh, relate to the work that you do? Yeah, so I think at the lab, uh, we work to develop tools and programs that are based in the science of learning. And to me, the learning sciences are truly just like learning about learning. Like, I think we don't really know enough about how people learn. And so what data can we collect to figure out more about what actually works and how people actually retain information. And then I think learning engineering is kind of this like convergence of like using the learning sciences and also integrating like technology and data and then using that to, um, you know, sort of have a feedback loop of like, what do we learn from this data? How can we use that data to design something to figure something else out? And that's kind of, uh, I think all of our projects sort of, you know, go from there. <laughs> Thanks. And how about for you, Neil? What do these concepts mean to you and how do you put them to work in what you do? The, um, uh, so so um, I guess actually, uh, so, I'm, so I'm best known for this platform known as Assistments, where we have half a million children doing their nightly homework and daily classwork. And we use this platform actually to um, try to actually learn what works. Uh, like, uh, uh, like for instance, like um, m many of us are really focused on actually asking kids more challenging, deep questions. Uh, we wanna get kids, uh, you know, and we as, we as teachers and me as a professor should be asking our children uh, to explain stuff. Uh, and so at the same time we recognize, oh, teachers actually have a hard time actually responding to all of that. Uh, like for instance, there's a project that I actually have um, where, you know how Google, do, um, um, everyone here in the room probably knows how actually their cell phone, their 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 Gmail will actually, uh, will respond with three little things at the bottom of your email. That's called Google Smart Reply. It's not named that, but that's like uh, when, uh, I love to do that because I hate writing my email, but actually I can pick on one of those three options. Why don't teachers have that? Uh, for all their open-ended responses. So I have 20,000 middle school and elementary math teachers that are using assistments and they are still having to grade. Well, they were up until actually a year ago. They're having to actually grade all of the children's explanations in their math homework. Uh, and that's insanely laborious. Uh, and why can't we actually make some suggestions like, hey, you probably wanna say to this kid, amazing job and this other kid wow you kind of forgot that this is a systems of linear equations and this other kid you didn't say very much uh like wouldn't that be better uh, and so um so um learning engineering to me is actually kind of like 
um, trying to be a scientist at the same time trying to solve real problems and that actually occur in authentic learning environments. Uh, and I guess that's where the engineering comes in, like the solve real problems and the science is like, hey, let's try to actually like apply science to this. Great, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna open up the next questions to anyone who wants to jump in. Um, we can keep this order or just feel free to, to speak as you are led. Um, I'm interested to know a little bit more about the specific problems you're trying to solve or the specific um, aspects of teaching and learning that your work or your organization's work aims to improve. Neil gave us a great example there about kind of teacher feedback to students. Um, what are the what are the details of, of what you hope to improve um, either for teachers and or for students? So many, so, so many things. Um, I think at the lab, there are a couple of problems that we're trying to solve with different projects that we're working on. So like one project is focused on like trying to improve the quality of machine generated feedback on writing in order to provide teachers with more support um, in giving feedback to their students so that students have more opportunities to write and can do that independently. Um, but then also trying to, I think one big thing for us is like trying to make sure that educators like that teachers are directly involved and making sure that we're addressing the needs of teachers in doing that. And I think that I mean, specifically with uh, the writing project um, is like so incredibly important because there are lots of tools that exist. But when you talk to teachers, a lot of them don't actually uh, support teachers in the way that they need to. And then another problem <laughs> that we're trying to solve with a different project is like trying to bridge that like education research teaching practice gap where like research is happening without teachers and then teachers receive information that's like, oh, this thing works, but they have no, no clear direction on how to implement that necessarily. Um, and so we ran a program, a pilot program this past year where we supported teachers in running like RCTs in their classroom. Uh, just to try to, you know, change who's, who gets to ask the research questions. Uh, and also, you know, just have like faster uh, research to practice cycles. And so we had some teachers who actually got to run their experiments like three times over, over the course of the year. And obviously the sample size is small and context is a huge thing, but some teachers really thought that a, a specific intervention was going to change something significantly. Like we had one teacher who is a biology teacher who ran a study on uh, teaching about the biology of skin color um, to see how that affected students' perceptions of race and actually found that it, it uh, didn't really change anything, which, uh, you know, we all thought it would. So just... Um, yeah, so being able to like gather those insights quickly and have the teacher being the person who's doing that. Great, thank you. How about for you, Callie? What are the what are some specific problems or components of teaching that that you work on? Yeah, so I need to talk a little bit about this sort of research to the classroom. You know, how do we bridge that gap? And I think that is that's one of the things that that Deans for Impact has been 
interested in for a long time. Um, I personally was first interested uh, as a teacher who found most of my information about educational research on Twitter and sort of thinking, okay, well, this can't be the best, right? Everybody is not on Twitter, nor should they be. And so how do we think about simpler ways uh, to help teachers understand the the vast literature that that is out there about how the mind works and what we've learned, you know, in the last 30, 40 years. You know, I like to joke that the education major is often like a classics major in disguise because, right, we spend all this time talking about Piaget and Dewey and these guys who are writing like a long time ago. And we've learned a lot about the mind since then. And so, um, so Deans for Impact published a, a publication, which I highly recommend to all viewers called The Science of Learning, which was an attempt to kind of synthesize and say, how do we, how do we simplify for folks? Like, these are some really big ideas that we have pretty good confidence really help learning. Um, and since then have been kind of translating that into how do we help novice teachers start to apply those in the decisions that they make in their planning. So a lot of the time with novice teachers, we see huge amounts of reinvention of the wheel. I know when I was in my, it's summer, some folks are just starting their first week of summer school teaching in their teacher preparation right now. I was writing my own texts and making my own note catchers for students, right? So there's all this labor that teachers and, and especially novice teachers are doing. Um, without just having a, a simpler filter to think through, okay, what's happening cognitively? What is the cognitive load that I'm putting on students? Where might I lighten that load a little bit in order to go deeper on the really important things? Um, and so thinking about how to build that heuristic using, you know, the simplicity of, of cognitive load theory to help novice teachers make better instructional decisions. And Neil, um, tell us a little bit more about some of the teaching practices or classroom problems that your work tries to address? <clears throat> well, well, one project actually that I thought actually I should say something about is um, we did a project at Texas A&M working with the pre-service teachers in the math classroom, right? Uh, and, uh, and we actually had them uh, looking at actually the solving math problems. Uh, and as you kind of know, many elementary teachers actually are not super excited actually on teaching the math always. Uh, and so first get them to solve the problem and then actually try to get them to, um, the goal was get them to be able to say something intelligent to a child um, uh, and car caring and intelligent, something reasonable um, um, when they make a, when they make the single most common wrong answer that exists. Uh, we happen to know that because in assessments we collect all this data. So we know this, uh, not too surprisingly, 90% of the teachers got the problem right, but gobs of them made the common wrong answer that children make. Uh, uh, but then we actually basically got them to, uh, most of them get on YouTube and actually spend 30 seconds. What do you want to say to a child that just did this? Like, imagine you're walking around the room. Okay, what do you want to say? Um, and we know in the teacher noticing literature uh, from people like Heather Hill and Deborah Ball, like being able to notice stuff and be able to recognize, hey, all on the hey, that's pretty good. Actually, what you just said, actually, that's not totally wrong. It's not right, but it's not wrong. Um, um, if we can get teachers to notice that, that's a good thing. Uh, we also care what they say. Now, let's be honest. We don't know what teachers are supposed to say, right? We, uh, we can go ask, actually, some supposedly good teachers, actually, for some thoughts. The person who's running the class actually can grade those pre-service teachers, their opinion. But wouldn't it be cool if year after year, 
we kept asking teachers to tell us what they what they want to say to kids. And then the year later, we actually asked them to make predictions about which explanations do you think would be best. Um, and instead of actually me saying, we don't know what the good explanations are, I actually could tell you, actually, hey, of the half a million kids using assessments, the message that actually causes the most learning as measured by the, how, they're, how they do on the next problem uh, was this one. Like, wouldn't that be cool? So every year the class is getting better. Like that to me is like learning science and learning engineering put together, right? And it also has the right amount of like lack of hubris. Like we actually don't really, like certainly we know some things you shouldn't say, like don't yell at the child, okay? Uh, and, uh, but I, I, I think we should also just be open that actually all of us actually, lots of these things are not studied, right? Uh, and, and our expertise, people sometimes think that experts because you're supposedly an expert. Oh, you're supposed to know the answers to all this stuff. No, my expertise is actually our expertise in methods to actually get to actually understanding, not in knowing all these answers. There's lots of things we don't know. And so, I, and I think it would be great if we actually had a, a um, uh, as um, as is said on actually one of the things that was just sent out, you know, improvement of post-secondary education will require converting teaching from a solo support to a community-based research activity by Herb Simon. Um, um, and he was on my committee. And so I love Herb Simon. And um, um, we we want to turn, if learning engineering really means something 20 years from now, um, more teachers will be involved in these activities and, and not just involved in them, but driving them. I just gave examples where we came up with the research question, right? Uh, as if people should care about what, should, what we should say to teachers. Uh, but I just also want to say some of our other colleagues are going to remind us we actually want to get our research questions from the field, not just from us professors that say, this is what you should care about. Yeah. And I just want to up that last point. I think it's so important and can't be underscored enough. And, and to Anya's point earlier about getting teachers involved in this action research process and how do we how do we connect that with the sort of more formalized uh, uh in the ivory tower research process that puts a stamp on something in a, in a journal. Um, and a friend of mine recently published a piece just talking about, you know, the nuance and specificity of the way that the question is designed and the way the instructional materials that we're testing, those have impacts on whether or not the, you know, the outcomes of the study are legitimate. And so having teachers' voices both at the question asking phase and in the materials design and the writing and the scripting of the, the potential responses, teachers' voices are going to be so important in all of those steps. After the break, what is the one key thing from learning science that all educators and learners should know? The one really key finding? The one key finding, at least according to our presenters. Stay with us. What do Northeastern University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? Well, they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content or paying for a white glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated but simple automation. 
Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource-intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. I think each of you has mentioned working with pre-service teachers or, you know, teacher preparation programs. And I, I anticipate that we have a lot of current classroom teachers um, here today. How can an educator, um, you know, learn more about learning science, learn more about learning engineering and start to put some of this in action in their own classroom? Um, you know, do they need to participate in an official research program? Do they need to set up their own randomly controlled trial? Or are there some strategies that people can read about or think about, you know, starting tomorrow, starting in the fall next school year? Most teachers, most teachers at ISTE actually rightly are here to be like, I actually want to just make my classroom better, right? And I was a, as a middle school math teacher, actually, and my main goal is what can I use for tomorrow, right? Actually, and my changing my practice, like um, most of the time, I, now that now that I'm a professor, I care about actually, like we want to publish things and and do science and whatnot. But that is not what you know most of our teachers want to do. While it is the case that a few actually a few of my students are actually getting their PhDs, like they're real classroom teachers, and they actually are ex- and they are using science to actually figure out what works in their classroom. Uh, I recognize that's not what most of our audience cares about. So I think most of our audience should be interested in figuring out, hey, um, I don't know, like what are the, what are the, what are the tools that we actually already actually know about from learning sciences and those things that are getting better uh, and that they should think about, like actually things that have actually passed the, you know, um, the What Works Clearinghouse, which is our federal repository to figure out what works. Uh, it turns out this thing that I created called the Sysmans is one of the few things uh, that actually works of figuring out how to use things that actually have been shown to work was a good start. Uh, and uh, and I guess figuring out those things that actually look like they're also trying to contribute to actually getting better and better over time uh, seems like another good thing. Um, but what are the, what does the rest of our panel think? I'm by no means an expert. I just want to say that. Um, I think as far as like things that can be tried right away, I think that's a little bit of a hard question, especially for teachers, because I feel like there are, I feel like they sort of need tools to be able to like run experiments and there aren't, there, there are some, but there aren't a ton of them. Um, I think as far as like maybe longer term, I know as a part of the teacher run experiment that we were running, we were working with Ben Motes at Indiana University, who's working on building like an experiment builder tool for teachers to, to, to like run RCTs, collect data, be able to anonymize that data and also like share it with other teachers. And it it is platform agnostic. So it could sit on Canvas, for example, and a teacher could use that. I think like more and more platforms are um, 
trying to move in a learn, learning engineering direction to be able to offer those kinds of tools and support to teachers. But I think it's, um, I don't think it's uh, everywhere. Yeah, I think this this tension of wanting something that works tomorrow versus like, how do I think about my own schema for how learning happens and, and what I understand about the mind, what I understand about the affective experience of learning and how those things interact with each other, um, you know, which... That is that's the long game for all of us who are interested in developing our own practice. I think Dylan William would say, and I would I would go with whatever Dylan William would say, that cognitive load theory is the single most important thing that any teacher should learn about, about cognitive science and the science of learning. And I tend to agree with that. I think understanding the ideas of the limitations of working memory has just a profound impact on the way that we think about every aspect of classroom instruction. Um, so I would probably start off with like read up on cognitive load theory and maybe read um, Rosenshine, who uh, Tom Sherrington did a really great job kind of doing this illustrated uh, breakdown of Rosenshine, who basically said, I want to take the learnings of cognitive science and what we've tested about cognitive scaffolds for learning. And I want to match it up against all of our observations of highly effective teachers. And I want to find those points of intersection. Where is their alignment and where is their overlap? Um, and how can I kind of distill that into some basic principles about what works in instruction? So I think Rosenshine is another like start with that tomorrow and that will not only change your practice tomorrow, but change your whole schema about, about how learning happens. Um, but I think the other really important piece here is sort of to Rosenshine's point, putting this learning science literature and, and way of thinking in conversation with other literature. So saying we have cognitive science, we also have really rich literatures on culturally sustaining pedagogies. How do those interact with each other when I put them next to each other and put them in conversation? Um, and how does that shape my thinking about my students and my teaching? I wanted to ask, um, a little bit about how we know what works. How do we know what we know about what works? Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your scientific process or, um, you know, how you do the research that you have cited so far? Um, I feel like, especially lately, um, you know, in the pandemic with vaccines, with masks, there's more and more questions about, well, how do we even know what is happening and what works? So I'd love to know that that answer for, for the work that you all do. Um, uh, I'm happy to start. Clearly, like, like one really, you know, the gold standard for vaccines, for instance, is run a randomized control trial. Uh, and that's what they did to determine if these vaccines actually work. Um, and uh, that is a lot of people were actually given actually a sugar pill and not, well, or something they... They were stuck in the arm, actually, with a jab, actually, and they didn't know that it wasn't the vaccine, right? Uh, and that's what a real randomized control trial is. Um, and um, uh, that's the double-blind standard. You can't do double-blind in education, meaning the child doesn't know um, if they got any, they got any anything. Uh, but the next best thing is actually at least uh, what what we've done with the types of work we've done, where. Some kids actually were actually able to use a product that made sure they got immediate feedback and others were kept doing what they were doing. Uh, and But it was randomized to begin with. We actually got 44 schools that agreed to random assignment and then they got randomized and then we looked at like essentially state test scores. Uh, and so that's one way. We also do much smaller studies that actually are um, 
that are, are, are really small scale. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to drop another one in the chat because um, actually, if you're a teacher and you actually want to actually do learning science yourself, go look at immediate feedback. You could go implement the study that we just put in this paper, okay, which is test actually how much more kids learn if you figure out some way of making sure they get immediate feedback tonight for homework. Okay, you can use any system you want. Okay, I actually, my system I built makes it free, but actually, there's plenty of systems to try to get kids to get immediate feedback. All I care about, and what my my little, what my little, I guess he's not little anymore. My 11th grader will tell you is, mom and dad are nutso about immediate feedback, and give me your piece of paper, son. Actually, I want to give you some immediate feedback. Uh, is what they've heard all day long, or all year their whole life, uh, and uh, um, media feedback causes better learning. We've shown it, that's one of the it's one of the biggest, best scientific, actually, principles, actually, uh, out there. Uh, and what's really crazy is gobs and gobs of schools are not doing it, right, actually. Uh, and, uh, and so you should ask yourself, how many minutes is it taking before my child, after doing something, is getting feedback on whether they did it right or not? Yeah, I think the piece I would add when I when I think about this, you know, how do I know, how do we know using a sort of a learning science or a learning engineering stance, what what is actually working for students um, is this idea of everything is formative data assessment, right? I think a lot of the time this is a confusion that a lot of uh, novice teachers have. It's like, well, what is a formative assessment? Actually, every question that you ask is a formative assessment, right? And every uh, body language and every hand that goes up in the air or doesn't go up in the air and certainly everything that a child writes on a piece of paper in your classroom is formative assessment. Um, and so thinking of of your data collection as this totally iterative and continuous process. Um, and I think one of the other pieces that has has become much more a part of the conversation now, which I think is incredibly important, is this idea of disaggregating. So even looking across your classroom and disaggregating the data. How is my instruction impacting different groups of students or different individual students differently? And what am I going to do with that information to shift my practice and make sure that I'm meeting the needs of everybody in the classroom? Um, I wanted to ask whether any of our panelists ever face resistance to their efforts to improve teaching and learning. Um, I feel like everyone ever feels like they know how students learn, they know how to teach because everyone went to school to some extent. Uh, I hear this a lot that everyone's got their, their own opinions about why we should do what we do. So what is what happens when you tell someone that their you know, beloved strategy actually doesn't really work? Um, and what can these folks do um, if they want to take a learning science-informed approach in the classroom and they face some resistance, either from students or parents or principals, um, what's it like to, to have this knowledge and want to share it and not always be received well? Maybe I'll start with you, Callie, if, if that ever happens to you. Sure. Yeah, I think there's there's a ton of resistance to learning science. I think, especially in the reading world right now, right? There's a lot of pushback against the science of reading, and um, I think that one part of it comes back to Neil. You know, Neil used the word hubris earlier, um, and I think that there is a really important piece here, which is 
us all recognizing that we're sharing the findings of learning science and learning engineering, but naming constantly, we're not saying that's the only piece of information that we need, right? We teach students science and we teach them social studies and art. We need to use different literatures to understand the different dimensions of students' learning experience and bring those pieces together um, in, in shaping the, the communication that we're doing and, and the decisions that we make in, instructionally. Um, so I think us making sure that we're sort of moderating that hubris and the way that we communicate and, and naming this interacts with other literatures in important ways that we should think about. I think that's one piece. So um, I, guess I, I guess I interpret this question kind of in two ways uh, or, or, or two answers. Uh, I interpret this question a little bit kind of like, hey, is there, is there, is there a like, uh, uh, well, okay. So here, I'll tell you an embarrassing story. So, um, um, so my son Charlie, who's already got mentioned, actually, um, he came home with a um, a thing from his teacher saying, "Hey, is your child actually a video, a visual learner, a kinesthetic learner, or a, a textual learner?" And because Dad's a stupid academic, actually, I sent back actually, you know, Hal Pashler's actually wonderful research article, which I will drop in the drop in the chat, which is like that's a really not a very useful research question anymore. Like what we what the science of learning knows is that actually lots and lots of people have looked at this, and everyone and their mother is actually thinking, oh, we should actually customize by by people's learning style, not a single person has ever actually demonstrated that they have succeeded at this. And so Hal Pashler, in a much more diplomatic way than me, says, well, there's other actually strategies that are that have a stronger evidence base that we should actually look into. Uh, so we should try to figure out useful things to actually help teachers do actually, because like, you know, 20 years ago, it was when I was a kid, whether you're left-brained or right-brained, and we're giving everyone stupid tests about this, and then teachers are supposed to figure something out about that. And so there's so many stupid things that are faddish, but I think there's some really simple things uh, that we've talked about uh, that I think we should we should we should try to actually remind ourselves our our, our core and are worthwhile to work on. Informative assessment, just like helping you as a teacher actually helping helping yourself as a teacher make sure you can just assess actually are your kids learning what you're trying to teach them and if they're not do something about it adopt that frame of mind and it doesn't matter what tech you use or anything uh, but that's the job one of the reasons i wondered about this is um i think if delivered in a not especially sensitive way um, you know, it could sound like we're doing science on students or, you know, well, what does learning science have to do in the art classroom? Or it just feels like there are several ways that this could be presented that don't sound appealing at all to, to people. So um, I think something that you have all mentioned is that um, learning about this with teachers seems to be seems to be key, not just kind of delivering the answers from on high, but kind of helping them to to do what they want to do, which is teach children better. Um, yeah, I think that piece is so important. And um, now I'm going to be on my Dylan William plug all day. But one of the things that he always says is, you know, the hardest thing is you're trying to get people to replace something that's good with something that's better, right? And that there is some intuition behind a lot of the misconceptions and, um, you know, 
learning conspiracies <laughs> that folks have, like like the learning styles. And so helping folks say, okay, there's something there. Everybody identifies as a visual learner. Actually, we are all visual learners and that's called dual coding, right? And so helping people find those points of connection. And I think the other piece is like this, um, the learning economics movement, which doesn't exist yet, but you know, this idea of opportunity cost while you're doing X, you could be doing Y. And so it's not that you're not seeing learning, right? You see learning in your kids, you see growth on their reading assessment or whatever it is, but you would see more if you were doing this other thing. And here's the rationale for why. Callie, I foresee a great op-ed in InSearch about the new field of learning economics. So I'm going to follow up with you about that. I have one that's like, I don't know if it's a I don't know if it exactly fits as like a teaching and learning myth. And I don't know if there's research on it. It's just something I've heard from talking to like hundreds of teachers, the assumption that students are digitally fluent and, um, and just like automatically know how to use a platform and uh, know how to type and all of, all of that kind of stuff. I think I've heard from so many teachers that they run into so much trouble using platforms because, you know, they think that like, oh, a student is used to like using apps and whatever. And so they'll be able to do it. And then I've had so many teachers say the kids don't know how to type. Like (laughs) they could write an essay on their phone, but they can't sit down and do like five finger typing. And so I think uh, just as we move into this space of like online learning and using more digital platforms, just knowing that there's also like a learning curve there of, you know, of students having to figure out technology as well. The, the, uh, um, I'll, I'll throw a different one out here, which is actually, this is ISTE, right? ISTE's got a lot of tech, right? There's a lot of things out there, like including things like my advisors created called called like intelligent tutoring systems or like things like Carnegie Learning Cells, this thing called Mathia or McGraw-Hill Cells, Alex, where there's this, um, there's this, there's this tech vision, which is, oh, put the kids down in front of a computer. And when the child has learned something, they should be able to go on and do the next thing, right? The computer can give them that, that, that intuition is such a obviously, it sounds like a great idea. And, and when I actually told my advisor when they're building his system, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He's like, why is that dumb? And I'm like, where's the role for the teacher, right, actually? And so, like, I think it's really important for us as we think about technology sort of stuff is because I've seen a lot of technologies uh, like those ones that I just mentioned, and they're not the only two, uh, where the computer is actually in charge of pacing the curriculum the whole year long. And that is the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Right. Actually, uh, teachers actually want to teach something uh, and then and then they should their kids should be able to go home and actually and then tomorrow they should be able to see. Holy cow. No one knew how to do the adding problems, but they knew how to do subtracting or whatever the heck it is that you learn. The goal of the technology is not just to teach the children, but to teach you something that you could then use. Right. And do something with. Right. Uh, and it should be paced to do what you what is good for you and your experience with those children. Uh, and so I want to I want to see us building technology that is actually like in that mode. 
Thanks. Callie, any, any myths to bust as we, as we almost wrap up? Yeah, I guess in our, in our last 30 seconds, maybe I'll take us kind of broader than technology, which is, you know, this idea of discovery learning and inquiry learning and kids need to start from scratch and invent the wheel themselves. I think there's really, really robust literature showing this doesn't work for the majority of students and it negatively impacts the students who would benefit the most from direct instruction. In other words, it's a pedagogy of privilege. Paul Bruno, I believe, coined that. So I'm going to give him credit for that phrase. Um, and so thinking about if we value the experience of discovery for motivational reasons, how do we create those, seed those experiences, but make sure that students are getting the sequence direct instruction that they need with opportunities to, to really build their knowledge rather than being left to flounder? That's the biggest one. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, I learned a ton. I hope that our audience did as well. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. We are here with new episodes every Tuesday. And as things open back up and events start, we are uh, looking to do more live podcasts at events. So if you have an event that makes sense for us to come and do a live session that will later run on our feed, get in touch. I'm at Jeff at edsurge.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And then take a minute on that app wherever you listen to podcasts to click on a rating or review. The editing for this episode was done by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JR Young. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.